All right, let's open up our Bibles to Psalm 8. We're continuing our series called Q&A, which is a short series that looks at specific passages of Scripture where the weighty, the heavy, the serious questions are asked, questions that relate to all people in all places, in all generations. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would teach us today and that you would change us. Lord, if there's anyone here who does not yet believe, who does not yet follow Christ, we pray that today would be the beginning of their faith journey, their their walk with Jesus. We pray that today would be the day of their salvation. And for those who do know you, God, we pray that today you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us and lift us up for your glory and for our good and for the good of those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. The expression is uh, misstated a lot, and it annoys me. Uh, When it's said wrong, it sounds like this. I could care less. When it's stated right, it sounds like I couldn't care less. There's a difference. It annoys me. I don't know why it annoys me. It shouldn't annoy me. It's because I'm arrogant and proud, I suppose. But uh, it just, it, I, I, like, just if you think it through, right? Like, we all do that. We all wind up saying things that we don't really think through. This is one of those phrases. So we usually say this when somebody is throwing the consequences of our actions or a choice that we're going to make, something that we're about to say. And they say, if you do that, X is going to happen. And we say, like, well, I could care less. And if you say, I could care less, what you're saying is, I care. I mean, I could... I care this much, I could care less, but I don't care less, I actually care this much. It's just the wrong way to say it. What you mean to say is I couldn't care less. I have, there, I have no sense of caring whatsoever. I don't, there, this is irrelevant to me, the consequences are immaterial. That's what you mean to say, I couldn't care less. I don't care, I, I was thinking about it because I don't care is a, is a weird expression because it's not always negative, sometimes it's negative, like, you know, I don't care, don't care, don't, don't. sometimes it's a, it's a positive, right? So... Like if Rob Warford were to say, hey, you want to go get tacos after lunch? I'd be like, yeah, baby, let's get some tacos after lunch. And he said, where do you want to go? Uh, jalapeno grill, uh, salsa verde? And I go, I don't care. I'm not saying, I don't care. I don't, I'm saying like, man, I'm open. That's what, that's what I don't care in that case. I'm open. Let's just choose the place. And by the way, don't add. Rob's the kind of guy that would now ask me because like, he would be like, oh, that is a good idea. But I have, I have to work after this. I, I get to keep working. I don't get to go for lunch today. So anyways, um, like, it doesn't always mean something bad. It oftentimes means indifferent. It can mean you're not concerned. It can mean you're not invested. 
It can be a dismissal that whoever you're talking about or whatever you're talking about is so irrelevant, it doesn't matter to you at all. And I was thinking about this phrase, I don't care, because the psalmist actually applies this to God. David winds up asking this question. The question David asks is, why does God care? That's really what he's asking. In verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Why would God care? It's as if he expects God to be like, I don't really care. I couldn't care less. It's what it feels like David is, is getting at. Like, why wouldn't God think that way? And we're going to look at this passage, but that question in particular, to try to understand why it's actually a very important question to ask. Because if we get this wrong, we get life wrong. If we get this wrong, we get ourselves wrong. And I'll give you the answer to the question, why does God care this way? It's a simple principle. God cares because he made you for himself. God cares about you because he made you for himself. So here's what we'll do. We'll look at the passage in general, right? Then we're going to consider the question up close, and then I want us to consider the Savior. First, the passage, Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is a psalm of David where he begins to consider all of creation, the heavens above, what he can see on earth, and what he realizes is as great as all of creation is, God is greater. God is bigger, and yet, and yet, he pays attention to, is concerned for, is invested in humanity. Why? Right? There's a question that lingers there. So one of the things he says is that God is exalted above the heavens. Right? He considers the heavens. He looks up and he sees the stars and the planets. Verses 1, verse 3, uh, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place... He's considering space, what we call space. He looks up into the blackness and sees the stars. Like if you're far enough away from the lights, you can see these things. And when you're looking up and you're seeing the stars, the stars that you can see are a part of the galaxy that we are in, right? That Earth is in, right? There's a, more than one galaxy, right? So there's this galaxy, and a galaxy, our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, is like 100,000 light years across, Right now, that's obviously really big, and um, I don't understand science or math very well. Right, so that that it seems kind of overwhelming. I, what does that mean? Well, to go from one end of a of of our galaxy to another, a hundred thousand light years, it would take us um, over a hundred thousand years to traverse it, 100,000 years to traverse. So that's, that's pretty big. Okay, so that helps me to see, okay, it's really big. Maybe it's bigger, it's bigger than I thought. And in our galaxy alone, there are hundreds of billions of planets and stars. So now looking up from Earth and I look at creation, I know, okay, that's the galaxy that we're in. I can see part of it. And there's hundreds of billions of planets and stars in that one galaxy, now I'm feeling very small. I'm feeling very, like, wow, creation is so big. Creation is so expansive. I'm feeling small. I'm feeling fragile. I'm feeling insignificant. And then I realize, or read, really, that there are hundreds of billions of galaxies. 
people start to consider the greatness of creation. And some people began to feel very, very small, very insignificant. People sometimes will conclude that they are meaningless. Because what are they in comparison to everything else but something smaller than a speck of sand on a log on a beach? That's where some people go. It's a big universe and it's a small me, therefore I must be meaningless. My life means nothing. None of us mean anything. Other people see all of that expanse and they know of hundreds of billions of galaxies in each of which are hundreds of billions of planets and stars and they get hopeful because they realize there must be other life out there, right? And there's going to be there's other life forms, there's got to be other planets, and that's thrilling for them, that's exciting for them. And I'm not throwing shade, right? They're just trying to do the, the, the math on it, right? Like, well, they're, they're, it's likely that there's another solar system with more people, right? And they're, they get some sort of satisfaction or hope in knowing that we're not alone. We're not alone. There are other people somewhere, other beings Somewhere. And David, David's different. David, David looks at how big creation is. David realizes God, who made it all, is bigger. As expansive and overwhelming as the created order is, as the universe is, there is a God who created all of it by speaking it into existence. This fills us with awe, with a holy fear. This should fill us with wonder. And in fact, this is why David wonders so deeply. It's why it's so profound that we are this small in comparison to the rest of creation, and yet God pays attention to us. We will never see most of what exists in all of creation. We will never see the vast majority of what God has made, and yet he pays attention to us. Why? And it's not just creation, right? Because creation is big and expansive, but then there's this, this statement, and it's a, it's a famous quote. It's quoted out of context all the time for all kinds of reasons. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. In other words, David says, listen, um, all of creation testifies to your greatness. And so does the cooing and the crying baby. How? In the same way that we look at all of creation and, and, and we consider the stars and we look to that Bell telescope or the, get those pictures from the Hubble telescope and we marvel at the expanse and the created order, or we look at a newborn baby. And even if you know technically it's not a miracle, it's kind of a miracle. It's pretty, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. It is pretty amazing, right? And then you look at the intricacies and... and and the beauty of a baby that's been born, and it makes its noises, and David says, the silly noises that a baby makes testifies to the greatness of God as much as all of the galaxies in the universe. It's as if David is saying, God doesn't need eloquent and articulate philosophers, he just needs a drooling baby to make his point that he is, and that he's great. David sees the stars, and he wonders, why would God care for me? God sees a baby, and he wonders, why does God care for us? Why does God 
take note of us? That's the question. This question really comes from a perspective, a particular perspective. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? This comes from a perspective that begins to see and recognize our smallness and our sinfulness, right? Our weakness and our waywardness. It's where you recognize your frailty and your fallenness. It's both things, right? It's like we... We begin to see I'm so small and weak and frail as it relates to all of creation. Why would God pay any attention to me? He is great. He is exalted above. He's the creator. I am but a creature. Why, does he, why is he the way that he is towards us? Providing, caring, offering so much. And on top of that, we are sinful, wayward, and fallen. So we ask questions like, why would God give us laws? Why does he care? Why does he care enough to tell us what to do? Why would he care what we do? Why would he care when we sin? In fact, I know people ask that question. I've had non-Christians like, bring that up to me before. I thought God was transcendent. And I said, he is. He's holy and transcendent. I'm like, absolutely. If he's so big and so great, why is he so perturbed when like, finite, sinful, stupid little human beings in space and time mess up and do the wrong thing? Why would he care? Isn't he bigger than that? And I like that they're trying to think it through. Like, I don't get mad at that. I'm like, no, that's a good question, man. Because you're not alone in thinking that. David had the same kind of thinking. Like, why, why do you care what we do down here? Why do you take notice? And why are you good? And so we, we, can, we begin, begin to answer these questions as we, we begin to answer those questions as we look at the big question here. What is man that you are mindful of him? So let's consider the question itself, right? What is man? We'll start there. Now, if you've noticed, as we've gone through this series on the big questions, the heavy questions that are asked in the Bible, uh, this keeps coming up, what we are, what we are as human beings, what is man? This is just the old way of saying what is human, right? What does it mean to be human? Now, to be human means that we are made in God's image. This is the fundamental thing that makes us more than a mammal, that, that actually elevates us above the rest of the animal kingdom, the created order. We are people made in God's image in Genesis 1, 27. Right? We, we've gone here a few times already in this series. And God made them, male and female, in his image. Humans alone bear the image of God, the imprint of God upon them. And because we are God's creation, made in his image... It brings with it significance to our lives that we would otherwise not have. Listen to Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Only the person that begins to understand that God is their creator, not just the creator, their creator, do they begin to enter into this kind of praise. You formed my inward parts. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. This is huge because it brings with it implications like you are not an accident. You are not a mistake. You didn't just happen. Like there is intentionality. Sometimes parents will even say, by the way, parents uh, might not want to do this. I mean, stop doing this if you're doing it. Don't tell your kid they're an oops baby. 
Right? Parents do that sometimes, like, yeah, we weren't planning on it, you know, it just kind of happened. Uh, more than likely, they'll be okay, like, as long as you're not mean about it, like, we really didn't want you. If you're just saying, like, we weren't planning for it and God gave it to you, that's fine, that's fine. But oops makes it sound like an accident. No one is accidentally born because no one accidentally comes into creation. God creates everything. He, he didn't just plant a seed on earth and then walk away, and now it's just growing. He, he maintains. He's a God of providence. We exist because God says so. You are not an accident. You, every individual, is intentionally created by God to exist and if we are all created by God and made in his image, not only are we not an accident, we are not worthless. You are not worthless. Sometimes we feel worthless. Now, some people don't struggle with that. Some people are just so filled with pride and hubris and arrogance, you know, they just think that they're the best, right? But a lot of people that I interact with and go through periods of time where they really feel worthless. And maybe it's because of trauma you experience or abuse or oppression, or maybe it's because you've just so self-sabotaged your own life and screwed up so badly that you think like, wow, I am now worthless. I now have nothing to offer because I've created such a big problem for myself. I've done so much damage, there's no getting out of it. Maybe you feel that way. But if God made you and made you in his image, you're not worthless, you have Value, value that cannot be measured. Value that is inestimable, right? That's the word. You are God's creature. You have value. This means your life should be prized and preserved, and everyone else's life should be prized and preserved. And if God made you in his image, you are not an accident, you are not worthless, and you are not without purpose. We've talked about this in the, in the series you are not without direction. You may not yet know it, but you do have a God-given direction for your life that encompasses the whole and moves you forward. Your purpose is to find your identity in your maker, your joy in your creator and redeemer. Now, here's the thing. What is man? What is mankind? What is humanity? We are image bearers of our maker. You can't undo that. You can't undo it. I've talked to people that have said, like, you know, I've done so much. I feel like there's just nothing left. I've I've, everything is a waste. You can't undo the image of God in you. You can throw up a, a, a lot of distractions. You can scar and mark up your existence, but you cannot remove the imprint of God on your soul. You can't undo it. Your past cannot erase it. The things that you have done that are wicked... Do not destroy it. The image of God is more or less visible in all people, but it's there for all people. You can't undo it. What you can do, what you can do is you can live apart from understanding it. You can ignore it. You can walk away from it in, in practicality, right? You can ignore what you are an image bearer of God, but in doing this, you are walking away from God and you are walking into self, and self, apart from God, is truly meaningless. Our meaning is tied up in our maker. He defines us. He created you. He knows who and what you are better than anyone, so we go to him to help us to understand who we are. What is man? The image bearers of God. 
But a related question would be like, so how is man? And uh, we're not so great. We're not so great. Every day, the news gives us more and more examples, not of human flourishing, but of human failing, of human destruction and corruption, of evil and wickedness. And not a week goes by these days when I don't get an alert on my, why don't you don't get alerts? I scroll. I start doom scrolling on Instagram, and I'll start scrolling, and uh, sure enough, at least I'm saying once a week, it's what it feels like. It feels like it's once a week. I get another report of another church that has hurt more people, that has lied, that has stolen, that has corrupted. It's wildly discouraging. How are we doing? We're doing pretty bad, right, overall, as a human race. The image of God is still there, but it's like we take every effort to hide it. We do everything we can to corrupt it, to to try to block it out or blot it out. Because if we're not made in God's image, then nothing that we do really does matter. We are nothing but animals. How are we doing? Well, we're corrupted by sin. In Genesis 6, 5, the first time humanity is really described after the fall, that is after sin came into creation, is pretty bleak. People think this is because, well, that's because people were really bad back then, but that ain't the case. People have been the same ever since the fall. Genesis 6, 5 says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. They weren't worse than us. That's us. This is the human condition. Our thoughts are only evil continually. Of course, that doesn't mean that we're constantly thinking about murdering and mutilating people. Sometimes. But it does mean that all of our thoughts are so impacted and corrupted by sin that even when we are having virtuous thoughts of some kind, they aren't perfect, they aren't for God, they are ultimately for us. That is the human condition. Psalm 14, verse 3, says, They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. David says this in Psalm 14. Paul quotes him in in Romans 3. That's the human condition. How, how, how is humanity? Not good. Specifically, explicitly, not good. And that can feel like a lot. Isaiah 64, 6 describes even our best works of righteousness as filthy stained rags. That's how we're doing. And it's important for us to keep these two realities in mind, right? That that we are created in God's image and yet corrupted by our sin. See, we have worth and value by virtue of being image bearers of God, but we have brought shame and destruction upon ourselves because of our sin. In fact, the corruption of our hearts, the corruption by sin leads to condemnation because of sin. This is why Paul says in Romans 1.18 that the wrath of God, that is the just judgment of God, is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. All in, it's everybody. So in light of this, in light of, in light of, okay, we are so small and we are so sinful, why does God care? Why would he pay attention? And I think we, we find the answer throughout Scripture in a number of ways. And there's one passage, it's a refrain, really, that's repeated a number of times. It starts in Exodus and then it continues on through a number of books in the Old Testament. But it's one of my favorite refrains that's repeated. It's Psalm 145, 8 and 
9. Psalm 145, 8 and 9 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Why does God care? Let me summarize. God loves what he has made. He loves his creation, all of it. He loves because it's his nature. It's in his nature to love what he has made. Why does God care? It's because he's generous in nature. It's who he is. So God loves what he has made. He has a nature that inclines himself toward what he has made to be generous and kind. He is gracious and forgiving. The Lord is gracious and merciful, and I love this. He's gracious and merciful. That's who he is, slow to anger. You know why you and I need to be slow to anger? Because we get it wrong almost all the time. Does God ever get his anger wrong? Why is he slow? Why is he slow to be angry then? Because he has to be, because he's that kind and patient to demonstrate his righteous anger. He is so exalted above us, right? This is what he does. He is steadfast in love, unwavering in his love, and he's good to all. Everyone can experience the goodness of God. In fact, everyone does experience the goodness of God to varying degrees. So he loves what he has made. He's generous in nature. He's gracious. Gracious, it means he gives us what we don't deserve that is good. He doesn't withhold good from us because we've burned too many bridges, He rebuilds the bridges. He brings us the grace, truckloads of grace. He brings us kindness and blessing that we do not deserve because that's who he is. In Isaiah 118, the Lord says, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. This is the posture that God has towards sinners to extend grace, forgiveness, cleansing, not just to extend wrath and judgment. That will come. That's on the way. But he always extends grace and mercy first. You don't have to perish. You can instead be purified. That's God's orientation towards his creation, to redeem, to renew. Listen to Psalm 130. Verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. God is a forgiving God. So when we're asking, why does God care? It is always rooted in his very nature. God doesn't care because we are so special, though. We are all made in God's image, and he loves what he has made, but we have also all earned destruction, and God continues to love us. This should be overwhelming, and it should lead us to ask another question. Not only why does God care, well, he cares because he is kind and compassionate and good. He cares for what he has made. How does he care? How does he actually do it? And I would answer that he does this through Jesus Christ. When you're reading Psalm 8, and you start, we'll start back up in verse 4, this is not just explaining that, that God has given humanity 
the right to rule over creation. It is explaining that, right? That is making that point, but it's going beyond that to point us to Jesus. So let me show you. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You've crowned him, that is humanity, with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. He's saying, like, you have created man, and you've allowed him to rule over the earth, right? You're, you're so kind, you're so generous to us, but that's not all that's being said here. This is also pointing us to Jesus, we know this because the Hebrews, the author of Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Speaking of Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him? He's quoting Psalm 8. Or the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. I know that's a lot. But Hebrews 2 is telling us that, that Psalm 8 points us to Jesus, where we see his incarnation and his exaltation. Jesus, the Son of God, takes on human flesh, human form, the second person of the Trinity, right? He takes on a human nature, so he becomes fully God and fully Man, at the same time, he was incarnated to take our place, to fulfill all righteousness, to show us the way. He did this to save us, the incarnation. But we also see that there's this exaltation, right? He is crowned now with glory and honor. After his earthly ministry and his life, death, and resurrection, he's crowned with glory and honor, and the earth is his footstool. He's reigning. Even though we can't see how it all works out, we can't see his reign visibly, we know that he's reigning. And the means by which this really was accomplished, he went from the incarnation to exaltation through Substitution. The incarnation led to exaltation through substitution. It's, it's verse 9, specifically, in Hebrews chapter 2, that we take note of. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone Here's how deeply and profoundly God cares for us that his son would step into humanity in order to rescue us from ourselves, in order to rescue us from his own judgment and justice, in order to give us the salvation that we need. This is a demonstration of how much God loves us, how much he cares for us. In fact, the passage that we read during the Lord's Supper, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 8 make this point. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ 
died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died not for the worthy, but for the ungodly. So yes, David is asking, why do you care? You continue to do good. You continue to do good. You are so kind to us. You are so faithful to us. Why are you this way? There is no answer other than that is in the very nature of God. It's who he is. So what we marvel at is not just that he loves us, but how deeply he loves us and how profoundly he loves us. We see it in Jesus who redeems Small, sinful human beings, weak and wayward men and women, frail and failing people like us. Why does God care? Because you were made by him in his image and you belong to him. He cares about your life. He cares about you. God cares because it's in his nature cares so much he offers redemption. Simply put, God cares because he has made you for himself. So the exhortation, the encouragement is, is go to the one who made you for himself. Live under his lordship. Live for his glory. Believe in his promises. Receive his son. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would continue to Teach us and instruct us that you would renew our minds, that our faith would grow, our love would grow, that we would, like David, marvel at why why you care, why you love us, that we would be blown away by this and that it would move us to respond in love-filled, joy-filled worship. In Christ's name, amen.